Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Our reading today is from Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, through chapter 9, verse 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and burnt, burnt, burned, burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of every man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning of the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, and many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between man and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Thanks so much, Haley. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, do turn to you and ask you to speak to us uh, by your spirit through your word. Lord, we do believe that your word um, is your speech given to us in love, that it is uh, useful uh, and beneficial for us in our lives, that in it we hear your voice speaking to your people. And so, Lord, we don't need my words. We need uh, to hear your words. And so, uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, illumine your word by your spirit, give us insight and understanding, and speak your grace and your truth to our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
This weekend, I uh, picked up a new book. I had finished uh, reading a book on Friday, and since uh, bookstores and libraries are closed and Amazon is taking uh, a little bit longer to get books to you these days, uh, I picked up a book um, that I have been reading or working on reading for the past five years. Uh, it's a book called Kristen Lovren's Daughter uh, by Sigrid Unset. Uh, and it's actually uh, three books uh, that she publishes, three books uh, telling one story about a woman, uh, a girl growing into a woman uh, in medieval Norway. And uh, it's been, I've been working on it for five years, not straight through. I read a bit. I put it down. I finish one of the books. I come back to it. Uh, but it's, it's 1,200 pages. Uh, it is a massive book. Uh, it's great. The fact that it's taken me five years is not a comment on the quality of the book or her writing. Uh, Sigrid Unset won the Nobel Prize for this piece of literature. Um, but it is 1,200 pages. It's a lot to read. And so on Saturday, when I sat down uh, to pick up uh, this 1,200-page book once again, I opened it to where I had left off maybe 18 months ago. And I went to start reading, and I realized I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know who these people were. Part of it was owing to the strange Scandinavian names. Uh, I didn't remember where these places were. So when it said that somebody went to go visit somebody else, I had no idea if that was across the hall or on the other side of Norway. Uh, I had forgotten the basic plot of the story uh, after so long away. And so uh, I did what uh, we do these days, which is I looked it up on Wikipedia uh, to find out the basic contours of the characters and the setting and the plot. Because when you go to uh, make your way through a story, but you don't know who's involved or where it is or what's happening, it's, uh, it's not a great experience. Uh, you don't get a whole lot out of it. You know, many of us uh, today living as we do in a secular age feel like we're in the middle of a story uh, and we don't know uh, where we are, what's going on, and who even the characters are meant to be. We live our lives uh, with very little insight into the nature of this world. Are we alone in this world? Is there a God to whom we have to answer? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Who are we as the characters, right? Do we have worth and dignity in and of ourselves or is our worth measured by what we do and what we produce without knowing the plot or the setting or the characters? We grope our way through life just hoping that we're doing it right. But the scriptures do provide for us an understanding. They set a framework for us so that we can understand what kind of story that we are in. They help us to understand the setting to our story and who the characters are in our story and the plot of our story. So that as life happens to us, we can know the basic contours and we can uh, improvise, right? I mean, life is not scripted. Uh, we don't know what's going to come. Nobody knew where we would end up now. Uh, but when we know the basic shape, of where we are and who we are and what's happening. We can react and live faithfully in this world that we find ourselves in. And that's a lot of what we're going to see in this story today. It's that it sets a lot of those big picture frameworks of the setting and the character and the plot of our story. You know, imagine what it would have been like uh, to be Noah having been in the ark with his family and this traveling zoo uh, in this boat for right around a year, to finally have the doors to the ark open and to step out onto dry land, to be hit by the sun again and to feel your legs on dry earth, 
what it must have been like to wake up to this new world. Right. I was joking with a friend the other day about how strange it will be uh, to eat in a restaurant again. Right. To walk into a full restaurant and sit around a table with your friends, how odd that will be. And we've been, you know, just in relative isolation in our homes for about five or six weeks with takeout from those restaurants and Netflix and all those things. And yet here's Noah uh, in the ark with his family, with the animals, and now walking out into this entirely new world. Imagine if you were Noah, the kind of questions that you might have been asking. Right? What kind of world is this that I'm coming back out into? What kind of God is this that I serve? Right, I know that he's preserved my life, but I also know that in judgment, he wiped out most of the rest of the world. Am I going to be, if I screw up one more time, is God now going to wipe me and my family out as well? What are the parameters that I'm coming into this new world with? And so the first thing that Noah does when he leaves the ark in verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The first thing Noah does is that he worships God. He gives God an offering because what he knows amount of all, in the face of all this stuff that he doesn't know yet, all the answers that he doesn't have yet, what he does know is that God has saved him. God has rescued his life miraculously from the flood. And so having experienced this salvation, he now offers an offering of thanksgiving. He worships God. I'm reminded of the psalmist words in Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. Right? This is the way that the story goes forward. As we experience God's grace, his saving work in our lives and in history, we express gratitude to him for his grace. Right? The Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which is a Reformed catechism uh, originating in the Netherlands, the first question of the catechism is, uh, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And it answers uh, in a famous answer that I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But then the second question is, what is necessary to live in the joy of this comfort? Right. If I want to live in the joy of that comfort of knowing that I belong to Jesus, that I'm covered in his grace and mercy, clothed in his life. What do you have to know? And the catechism answers three things how great my sin and misery, right? So the bad news, the bad news of the situation that I'm in because of my sin and God's justice, the grace of God given to me in Jesus, and then how I'm to show my gratitude for his grace, sin and misery, the grace of God, and then how I'm to give thanks for that grace. That's all of life. That's the way that we live our role in this story is by acknowledging our need of a savior, by receiving his mercy fresh every day, and by giving thanks to him, by living our entire lives uh, as a thanksgiving, as a sign of worship to God. And so that's how Noah steps out of the ark, in grateful worship to God. As the story goes on, 
we see that the author is clear to point out uh, and draw a connection that Noah in this story serves as a, uh, a reprisal of Adam's role. That Noah is a new Adam of a new creation. Right. In fact, a lot of the reading that we did today is a word for word quotation from Genesis one and two. Right. When God calls Noah to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. That's exactly his call to Adam and to Eve. And so this sets the framework of the plot of the story that's going to drive uh, so much of the rest of the biblical storyline. A new Adam living is a first sign of a new creation a family of grace, giving thanks to God, living their lives out of the overflow of that grace. That is the plot of the story that pushes the story along from these pages of Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Paul tells us in Romans that it all leads to us looking to the ultimate Adam, the real and final second Adam, Jesus, who came as the head of a new creation and we in him as his people walking out of an old world and in to a new world. That's the plot of this story, friends. People of a new creation, living in light of God's grace, communicating that grace to our friends and family and neighbors. It's a plot of new creation by grace. We go on to learn a lot uh, in, these, in this passage about the setting of the story that we find ourselves in. Right, We get the plot, a new creation by grace, and now here we have the setting of the story. And here in Genesis 8 and 9, God gives us the setting, which is going to be a world that's made stable and sustainable by his grace. If you look at verse 21 and 22, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma that is of, of Noah's offering. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God's covenant here uh, is sometimes called a covenant of stability. Because in this covenant, God promises not just to Noah, right? Not just to his particular new family of grace. But he communicates to the entire world. We're told later in the chapter he's even making this covenant with the animals of the world. That he will not again wipe out life from the earth. But that he will create a stable environment on this earth for the story to move forward. Right? That he's not going to intervene in judgment every time humanity falls into sin. But that he's going to create by his grace space and time for his grace to work its way out in history. Now, Paul will go on to tell us in Romans, he clarifies a lot of this, and he shows us that God is not, God's not doing away with his judgment here. God's not saying that he's never again going to judge the earth, but that he's going to delay his judgment in light of his grace. That uh, Paul tells us uh, that he overlooks sin, not as any turns a blind eye to it, but that he sets a framework and says, I'm not going to punish every sin the moment that, it's ha that it happens, but that I'm going to give time for repentance and grace to work on earth so that as many people as possible can be drawn into saving life in the person of Jesus. Friends, God's grace is patient. He is patient with us. He's patient with his world. 
right? We'll see his judgment happen in the biblical story, right? We'll see him intervene in judgment when he sends his people into exile. But he doesn't wipe out the earth. He doesn't give our sins what they deserve. He's patient with his world. And he's patient with us. He gives us so much of his grace while we are busy running away from him, sinning against him, while we're busy making ourselves enemies of God. He's patient with us, pursuing us by his grace. I love that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is explaining his commandment that we should love our enemies, the reason that he gives that we can love our enemies is because God gives grace to his enemies in creation. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 44 through 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. When you love your enemies, when you forgive those who wrong you, when you refuse to take immediate judgment or vengeance when wrong, Jesus says you show yourselves to be children of your father. You show a family resemblance of the one who gives breath and life, sun and rain, to the good and to the evil, to the just and to the unjust. And so God gives us the setting for this world that we live in, a stable world. Right? We know, don't we, during these days that the world is not as stable as we'd like it to be. Right? This doesn't mean that we don't get hit by disaster or pestilence or plague. There's war. There's hunger. Bad things happen still. But we know that when they happen, it's not God wiping the war humanity off the face of the earth. That God preserves humanity by his grace. So it gives us the setting and then finally, we want to see that it tells us so much in this passage about the nature of these characters in God's story, that we are, every one of us, made in the image of God. Every man, woman, and child bears the image of God. And for every life, uh, every one of those lives is to be protected and sheltered and valued because we bear the image of God. You notice humanity doesn't fundamentally change here. If you look at verse 21 again, God says the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, right? Noah and his family walking off the ark are not different kinds of people than those who died in the flood. They're still frail. They're still sinful. They're still angry and lustful and greedy. All of the things that are core to, to who fallen humanity is. And yet God still says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This is verse six. For God made man in his own image. So be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Human life is worth protecting. It's worth propagating. It's worth seeing that life fill the world because that life reflects God's image. It's a sign of God's glory in the world. Now, it's interesting in uh, so many of the religions of the ancient world, have flood stories in their accounts. It's one of the reasons uh, that we can have some confidence in the historicity of this, right? You'd expect that if there was a, a worldwide flood, that memory of it would exist in the cultures of the world. And we see this in the cultures of Mesopotamia, the ancient Near East. We see it in the cultures of Africa. In some of their stories, we see it in the, in the stories of India. 
that there is a lingering memory in all of these traditions of the flood. And yet what's different about the biblical account, about the account that we believe to be God's revelation of himself in it, is that if you look at so many of the other accounts, especially those of Israel's neighbors in the ancient Near East, the reason that the gods wipe out the earth in a flood is because of human overpopulation, right? They, they become upset that there's too many people in the world. And so they give the flood in order to thin the population, in order to cut down on the population of the earth. And yet God here assures Noah that is not the issue, that his judgment of the earth was moral on human disobedience and vengeance and all those terrible things we had seen. But that human life is in and of itself a good. He wants human life to be protected. He wants it to grow. And so in light of human sin, he says that all of humanity will be governed by this law, that there, there has to be an answer given for the loss of human life that we're accountable for one another. This gives some stability into this post-fall world. You can think of this as God's answer to Cain's question. Remember after he kills his brother Abel, and he says, when God comes looking for Abel, he says, am I my brother's keeper? And here God says, yes, you are one another's keeper. Not only your brothers, but your neighbors, your friends, even your enemies. An account has to be given for every human life. You can think of it also in, in light of Lamech, if you remember him from earlier in Genesis, when he claimed that because someone had wronged him, he killed someone. And when he said that he would be avenged 70 times 7, this puts a boundary on human vengeance. That yes, there would be justice, right? That yes, an account would have to be given, a life for a life. But it puts a boundary on human justice. That it's not just going to be a cycle of endless vengeance. You kill one of my villagers, I'm going to kill 10 of yours. But he sets a parameter of justice and equity and fairness. Because human life made in God's image warrants protecting and sheltering and looking after. You know, the rest of uh, the biblical law in some ways uh, is going to be an, an extrapolation of how that, how that works out. That not only are, would Israel be accountable when they murdered in their culture, but even if through their negligence, someone died, if they left an animal unattended who went out and killed an innocent person, that they would be accountable for that life as well. Friends, this is uh, some encouragement uh, to us, I think, during these hard days uh, where so much of our life has been disrupted uh, by this coronavirus, that what we are doing when we shelter in place, when we stay at home, when we avoid hanging out in large groups at restaurants, even when as a church, we make the decision to worship from our homes instead of gathering in person, that it's worth it because human life is worth protecting. Because we are accountable not only for what we do with those nearest to us, our family, but we're accountable for our neighbor's lives and their well-being. And the, the value of human life is rooted in the image of God. Now, this is uh, countercultural. It was countercultural then to, vote, to view every man, woman, and child as inherently valuable because of the image of God. And it's countercultural now. So much of our world finds the value of human life uh, in what might be called a utilitarian view of human life. That your life has value on the basis of what you do, what you produce, or how much you contribute to society. And we even, even here in America, you hear a language that attaches a, a utilitarian value to human life. 
When you hear someone say, uh, shouldn't we all uh, be able to go back to work as always, be able to go back to worship as always, just as we've always done, because it's only going to be the old and the weak who suffer and die because of coronavirus. Friends, that's a utilitarian view of human value, that older and weaker people are of inherently less worth than young working people. And uh, according to this passage, it's a, it's a sub-Christian view of the value of human beings, that every human life is worth protecting. And so God gives us the plot, uh, a new creation moving forward by grace. He gives us the setting, a world made stable by his grace. He gives us the characters, men, women, and children made in the image of God. And then he gives us a symbol to remember the story when he gives us the rainbow. Interestingly, uh, you'll notice there that your translation just says he set his bow in the clouds. There is no Hebrew word for rainbow. Uh, the word here is bow, and it's the same word that's used of a weapon of war. And so God, as a sign of his grace, says, I hang my bow in the clouds. God's bow, no longer bent towards earth in vengeance, now sits in the heaven, bent upwards, away from the earth and towards the heavens that he gives us this sign that God himself would deal with the problem of his justice, with the problem of his vengeance against sin, and that he himself would take that, uh, the, the cost of that onto himself. There's rich theology uh, around this symbol of the bow. If you remember not long ago when we were in Revelation uh, chapter 4, we see that the throne of heaven is surrounded uh, by what John described as a jeweled rainbow. So that when God looks out from his throne onto the earth, he looks through the eyes of his grace. He sees the world not through rose-colored glasses. He sees our sin. He sees it through rainbow-colored glasses because he sees his grace and he sees his promise. And he sees his commitment to pursue his people towards salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for the fact that this story that we find ourselves in is a story of your grace and your love to a wayward world. Lord, we thank you that in Christ, you see us not in and of ourselves, tainted by sin. You see us not naively through rose-colored glasses, but that you see us through Christ, that you see us clothed in his righteousness, and therefore you see us through the eyes of love and grace. That is good news indeed. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.